Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about foster, adoptive, and kinship care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the host of this show, as well as the director of creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be doing an introduction to domestic infant adoption. We will be talking with Carly Wagner. She is a program supervisor for infant adoption and birth parent pregnancy services at Children's Home and Lutheran Social Services in Minnesota. We'll also be talking with Erin Quick. She is the founder and CEO of Pear Tree, the organization dedicated to helping families navigate private adoption in the healthiest way possible. She is also the mom of two through adoption. And our panel will be rounded out with Courtney Lott. She is the owner and founder of Faithful Adoption Consultants, a consulting service that seeks to walk adoptive families through the adoption process from beginning to end. She's also the mom to eight children, six through adoption and two biologically. Welcome, Courtney, Aaron, and Carly to Creating a Family. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're going to begin just with some numbers, and I'm pulling these numbers from a Creating a Family article that's updated annually, and it's called Adoptions in the U.S., How Many, How Much, and How Long? So we'll start with the how many, and I wish I could tell you, really, the truth is we don't 100% know. The estimate is around 19000 in the U.S. every year the average cost of adopting a baby, and we are talking total cost, so that would be all cost included, would be anywhere from 25000 to 55000 So yes, a very large range. And the average length of time prospective parents wait for an adoption match, about 60% are matched within one year and about 80% are matched within two years. And these are accumulative numbers so that obviously there's some shorter and some longer. All right, first, I want to start with finding out what is the process at your agency or organization. Now, Pear Tree and, and Faithful adoption consultants are not agencies per se. So we'll be talking about what the process is. Erin, let's start with you. What's the process? What does Pear Tree bring and, and how does that process work? Yeah, so we're a little bit different than anything that has existed in the adoption world before. So we call ourselves an adoption enablement platform. And what we do is we collaborate with licensed adoption professionals to provide expecting and adopting families all of the resources they need to plan and manage their adoption journey in the healthiest way possible. And we say, when we say healthy, we're meaning social, emotional, physical, and financial. And so long story short, adoption professionals partner with Pear Tree, and we have built them products and services, things like a home study productivity platform that we call Homebase, that makes it really easy for their families to walk through their custom home study process all online. And then with that, then we bundle it with what we call Pear Tree Connect, which is our online profiles where families can communicate their intent to adopt and connect with an expectant mom and communicate directly with them, again, guided by their adoption professional. Okay. Carly, tell us about Children's Home and Lutheran Social Services. You guys are, as I understand it, a full-service domestic infant agency. So what is the process for a family who is interested in what's the domestic adoption process look like? Yeah, so we kind of really do everything from beginning to end. And so really that starts with that education process, making sure that families kind of know what they're getting into, feeling informed before making a decision if infant, domestic infant adoption is really the best route for them. 
And then we have an application process. And so that's a, a thorough process of background checks, reference letters, all that good stuff. And then the home study process. And so that's the legal document, which is a state formatted document. And so that will depend on what state, what the requirements are. Each state is different. Some have more thorough qualifications and some don't. And so it really depends. And then that is renewed annually as well. So even throughout the home study process, once they're home study approved, we're continuing to stay engaged with them no matter what their process looks like to make sure that's up to date and backgrounds are up to date, all that good stuff. And then really we kind of walk into the matching process. And so we do have birth parent and pregnancy services at our agency as well. And so families can choose to go into our profile service. So we only work with clients located in Minnesota. And so that means we're working with adoptive parents in Minnesota and birth and expectant parents in Minnesota. And so we strongly encourage our families to use other resources, other agencies, consultants, those types of things to broaden their reach outside of Minnesota since we're kind of just in that state. And so we kind of give families the tools to kind of navigate and some families choose to do that. Some families just decide to kind of stay within house. So we kind of walk families throughout that process. And then from there through placement and post-placement supervision, once placement occurs, we do at least two post-placement visits and follow, again, if it's in a different state, following those different state laws. So that's a, a very brief overview of kind of the steps. I wanted to ask you, so how does the matching process, parents prepare a profile of them and then you show the profile to expectant parents? Yep, exactly. Yeah. So we kind of, each agency and organization has their own like profile guidelines. So we have ours, we kind of share that with families. There's an, that's an additional fee, like an optional fee service that families can use. So some families choose to do that. Some families choose to do their own, whether that's kind of informal with like old word of mouth through friends and family or a more formal outreach with those other like consultants, different agencies. And so we can kind of be as involved in that as they let us be. Otherwise, they are kind of out doing their own thing as well. And just making sure that we're checking in, seeing how that's going, if we can offer support to them throughout that as much as we can. And then with that profile service and then expectant parents, if they are considering adoption, can look through those profiles and kind of navigate and select a family in that way. Okay. Courtney, what does a consultant, an adoption consultant do, and how does it fit into the domestic adoption process? We walk families from the beginning of the process to the end of the process. And so we like a home study agency would collect all the documents for a home study. We collect all the documents after they've completed their home study and all their ICPC documents and collect all those documents so that the family is ready, a profile. And then we network those families with licensed agencies and attorneys throughout the U.S., thereby hoping that they would be able to match with an expectant family sooner. Okay. We should mention that you can use an adoption attorney in the United States, most states, I should say. Most states allow you to work with either an adoption agency or an adoption attorney. And in some states, adoption attorneys are allowed to do the what's called matching, or in some states it's not. As you can hear from my words, that adoption is very state-specific. It's ruled by state law. So everything we say, we have to always couch it by say, check with your state, and that would be the case. Let's see, Courtney, then you have had experience in working with attorneys as well as with agencies. Generally, how does the process differ if prospective adoptive parents use an adoption attorney rather than an adoption agency? 
I feel like an agency is more full support and full support for the expectant family, more counseling opportunities, more handholding, whereas an attorney has less of that. And they're more just the legal work and connecting the two families. We don't work with a lot of attorneys because of that. We work with a lot more agencies because we like the full service that is provided to the expectant family. Okay. Erin, you work with both attorneys and agencies. Anything you would add as to the difference between working with an adoption agency versus an adoption attorney? No, I mean, I agree with what Courtney said. I think agencies are typically more full service and support. I think the big difference typically is just in the cost structure for the families, that there can be a pretty significant cost savings through adoption attorneys if that's available in your state. And so I I definitely recommend that families should look at that. But you have to weigh, I think, always who you are as a person, because I think if you're going to use an adoption attorney, you're going to be doing a lot more on your adoption journey than you are if you're working with an agency. And that's not right for everybody. It's not right for every family. So it's a constant process of weighing and being realistic with your own expectations. Well, and it's hard to sometimes identify cost. I, I always think of attorneys as being more like a la carte versus full service. and. One area that Courtney brought up that I agree with is that most, not all, because there are certain states that allow attorneys to really function as almost as agencies do, but generally outside of those states, counseling for expectant parents is usually not included. And if you want that, and I strongly recommend that people should want that, you're paying for that separately. There's usually less protection for birth parent expenses. If the adoption falls through, you're out the amount of money that you've spent. So I'm speaking in generalities because, as I said, every state would be a little different. So that's kind of in general the difference. However, if you have networked and found an expectant mom or expectant couple and it's, it's the right fit and you have done all that, then what you really might need is just the legal work done. So that's where an adoption attorney would be the perfect thing to do. Yeah, I, I would just add to that. I think because there's a, you can walk through the process, the steps of the process with an attorney, no problem. But I do, we always recommend that families, even if you're in, an, in a state where you can use an attorney, that they also talk to the agencies in that state just to make sure. For example, I used an attorney and I was able to walk through the process legally, but there was a lot that I didn't know when I was doing that, because yeah. like just the education piece that a lot of agencies really emphasize early mm-hmm. on in that process, I was able to complete my adoptions, but it wasn't until a few years after the adoption, I was like, oh my gosh, there was a lot that I mm-hmm. was able to gloss over. Yes. And not know. I couldn't agree with you more. Obviously, I run an education-based nonprofit, so I would think that. But mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times we've had parents reach out to us because they hadn't received much education, Mm -hmm. that just things they didn't know and being blindsided. And and one area in particular we often see is in transracial, just not having thought through. Now they love their kids and it's going to be fine, but they're feeling like they're playing catch up down the road trying to, oh my gosh, if I had, I wish I had started doing this sooner, that type of thing, which I will say there are attorneys who not as many, because it's not part of their service. They're not full service. That's not what they're intending to do. Hey guys, have you heard about our free courses that we offer on creatingafamily.org? Thanks to our partners, the Jockey Being Family Foundation, we have 12, yes, 12, count them, courses. You can find them at bit.ly slash JBF support. 
bit.ly bit.ly slash jbf support. And be sure to tell a friend about them as well. All right. How do domestic infant adoptions today differ from what many people think of what an adoption is? I think for so many people, they haven't really given much thought. So their, their idea of what adoptions are is what adoptions were 20, 30 years ago even. So Carly, how do adoptions differ now than way back in the day? Yeah, I think a good insight into this. I think a lot of times we hear adoptive families Friends and family ask them like, oh, where are you on the wait list? And I think that's a historical thing that people think of you apply to adopt and you just go up a wait list. And as soon as you reach the top, that's when you get a baby. And that is very much not the case now because those expectant parents are selecting adoptive families. And so that obviously makes the wait unpredictable too, just because you could be selected right away. It could take some time. That's one big one. I think we also are seeing an overwhelming amount of adoptions that have openness in them. And that's a big change that we're seeing. I would also say a a lot of people think that the people who are making adoption plans are minors or young adults, and that's not necessarily the case. We do see that, but we also see people who are 50 years old who are making adoption plans. And so I think we're seeing a, a wide variety in that sense as well. Anything that you would add to that, Courtney? I agree with everything she said. I think one of the biggest misconceptions now is the openness and closed. I definitely think that people expect them to be more closed and they're much more open now, which is such a good thing for the children, for the expectant family, for the birth family, for the adoptive family in most situations. But I also agree with the wait list. People expect there to be a wait list and you move up it and you get your baby at the time that you hit the top of the list. And that's not how it works anymore. Expectant families are looking through profiles and choosing the family of their choice. And that happens, like Carly said, sometimes very quickly and sometimes it takes two years. Yeah. And somebody who applied three months ago may be chosen ahead of you. So fair or not fair. Erin, what type of expectant mom's consider adoption for their child now? And that's a silly question because obviously each person is different, their reasons are different, whatever. But if you can make generalities, it used to be, as Carly said in the past, that we thought of it as being the high school cheerleader who Mm -hmm. got carried away one night and ended up pregnant. Now, what is the more typical scenario that you see? So we do a lot of data and analytics on our platform. We track a lot of different characteristics of information that people give us. And so we have a lot of data on this. And just to echo what Carly had said, I think the average age that we see of expectant moms is 24 to 36. So not as young as a lot of people assume. And the common denominator amongst the expectant moms that we see on Peartree is they already have at least one child. You see the same. And so they can't romanticize the idea of parenting. They they know the day-to-day of how hard it is, and they know they don't have the resources to do it. I think also a motivating factor is that adding another child to the mix they feel like would take away from the child they already have. They're, as you said, their resources, but their emotional resources are stretched. And a commitment to the child that they're already parenting is a motivating factor, I think, oftentimes. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted. Oh, that's okay. I was just going to say also, I think typically 50% below the poverty line at least, yeah, is the other characteristic that we see. Excellent. As I love data, so that's you're, you're, you're speaking my language. <laughs> but it's worth saying, too, I think we also track, we ask every expectant mom that registers on Peartree, 
why she's choosing to explore adoption. And the two greatest fears that we hear from expectant moms are one, that they'll be cut out of their child's life. Two, and these are almost exactly equal in terms of the greatest fears, is that the child will feel unwanted or unloved. Yeah. Or be angry at them or be disappointed in them for having made this decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that tracks it spot on with what we see as well. Courtney, how many, and again, you're working with a lot of agencies, how many profiles are typically shown, adoptive parent profiles, are typically shown to an expectant parent, expectant mom, and sometimes an expectant couple? It really depends on the expectant mom and the agency. Some agencies limit the number that they show and only show 10 to 12 at a time. Some only show three at a time. Then you have agencies that are larger that will show 50 at a time. Oh, wow. And the mom can handle that. So I really think it depends on the mom and what she's able to handle and what she wants and desires. If she knows that she can only look at a couple and then they'll put only a couple in front of her. Whereas if she knows that she can handle seeing, I want to see every couple that said yes to my profile, and then they'll put them in front of her. So I think it really just depends on the expectant mom. Is it typical then that agencies see if the parents will consider this adoption situation first and then only show the those profiles to the expectant mom? Yes. Okay. They present them with information on the expectant parents, expectant mom, expectant parents, and they are able to decide whether or not they are presented to that expectant family. All right. So that $64 million question that every prospective adoptive parent asks is, what is it that expectant moms or couples are looking for when choosing adoptive parents? Carly, I'll start with you. Yeah, this is a question we get asked all the time and I I always answer it. And it's one of those answers where it's so dependent. Like we see everything. We see expectant parents wanting like specifically like a same-sex couple or or a two mom and dad family or maybe location is important. Sometimes like they want someone, a family with a kid already or they want family that doesn't have kids or they want a family that has experience in fertility. I always tell families that you're not marketing yourself to the masses, right? Like you only need to find one person that you connect with. And so make your materials as specific as possible. Like maybe you have Harry Potter on your profile. That expectant parent might see Harry Potter and love that and connect with you. There's really nothing specific. I do think that there are times when expectant parents see a a family and really resonates or feels like, oh, like that reminds me of my family. Or if I were in a place where I could parent, like I would do that too. And that kind of draws them in as well. So maybe that's like one consistent thing that we see, Mm -hmm. but it still is just kind of all over the board. Erin, by any chance, does Pear Tree track this data? We do. Yeah, we track. So we have 10 different filter criteria on our website that expectant moms can sort through because to Carly's point, you just never know, like, what is the most important thing to an expectant mom? Maybe it's religion, maybe it's family structure, maybe it's race, education, location. And so we track to see what filters are clicked on first. And without fail, the number one most clicked on characteristic is personality type. And then it goes from, you know, a whole series of the things that I had mentioned, but personality is the filter that is the most clicked on in terms of an expectant mom's when she's registering into terms of what's important to her. And what personality types do you break down into? So we use 
the personality types that are based on Carl Jung's archetype, if anybody remembers like psychology 101 from college, but they're all good personality types. They're just very different. So it's everything from an explorer personality type of like this family prizes traveling and seeing the world over education. It doesn't mean that they don't also prize education. It just means in terms of what's most important to this family, they choose exploration over the sage, which prizes education over anything else. And so like we've had expectant moms that are like, I want to make sure I've never been on a plane and I want to make sure that my kiddo is able to like see the world and try new things. And okay, well, here's all the explorer families. And now what is important to you? Family structure, race, education. So we kind of walk through this, help them walk through a curated process all on our platform that they decide what is most important to them. And they also can decide kind of from a pretty big series of filters what they want to select in order to see particular family profiles. And that's like to Courtney's point, it kind of helps, you know, like so that they're not seeing 50 profiles, they see as many as they want to see, they get to determine what that process looks like and then only see the ones that map to what is closest to them. Courtney, is it harder for single women to be selected by expectant moms? We haven't found that to be the case within our organization. We match single moms very frequently and have a large community of single moms within FAC. And many of them have adopted very quickly. So that has not been something that we have seen. Erin, what have you seen? Same. Yeah, we've had, again, so we, we track. So family structure is one of the filters that we can see. And we have just as many expected moms click on stay-at-home parent as we do single parent family, LGBTQ family. So it's it's not any less. Interesting. Carly, does that track with what you're saying? No, I'm so interested to hear that. I feel like within Minnesota, at least, I do feel like we, some of our single applicants do wait a little bit longer, which is just really interesting to hear. Yeah, that's what we have seen as well, is that single applicants. Well, now let's turn to LGBTQ plus families or singles or couples. Carly, what do you see as far as willingness for same-sex couples or singles to be chosen? I expect the parents. Yeah, for LGBTQ. I would say that I don't have any data. I wish I did. I wish I was on Aaron's level. <laughs> I was just going to say, we're going to, Aaron will be next. <laughs> yeah. No, but I would say an expected parent comes. I feel like that's pretty quickly one that people feel like they are open to that or they're not. It's usually pretty quickly something that is like a determination when selecting and trying to narrow down those families. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say necessarily more or less. I think it just depends. Okay. Erin, what do y'all say? Yeah, it's the same. I think the two in terms of family structure that we see clicked on more and or less are with children or without children mm-hmm. versus the actual like LGBTQ family versus single parent family versus you know what the industry calls the traditional family. So we're not seeing any less clicked on. I think our platform has about 20% of the family profiles that are on Pear Tree are identified as LGBTQ or at least one person does. And so there's less families that I think are available, but they're not less clicked on. Mm-hmm. That is certainly reflective of what we hear as well. In fact, if anything, I would say that sometimes that it is an advantage, perhaps not for a good reason, but that uh, expectant moms would, and this may be changing somewhat, but the mentality somewhat of that from expectant mom thinking, well, at least I'll still be the only mom. And that's if she's choosing a gay couple. We actually had that happen last month where an expectant mom chose a gay couple in California 
for that very reason. And she wanted to make sure that she was choosing a gay couple that didn't have children. So this would be their, and that only wanted one child. So this Mm -hmm. would be their everything. And she would still be mom. Yeah. It doesn't always work out that way. So, you know, that's Mm -hmm. a, could be a problem. Yeah, we call it the modern fan, the modern family effect. You know, after uh, Cam and Mitchell, um, modern family, everybody wants them to be the parent uh, of their child. Hey guys, are you enjoying today's podcast? If so, would you do us a favor and tell a friend about what you've learned when you listen to this creatingafamily.org podcast? We depend on you. The word of mouth is the way to get more people to listen to this show. That helps our mission and our helps our organization. So please share the word. Also share the word about Creating a Family's interactive training and support group curriculum. It is a really terrific video-based participatory interactive training. It can also be used for support groups. We love it. The library has 25 curriculum in it, each one on a specific topic. So check it out at our website, creatingafamily.org, hover over the word training, and click on support group curricula. All right, now let's talk about birth parent expenses. And as we say this, this is varies greatly by what state you're in. Courtney, you work all over the U.S., can you give us a feel for the variation in what is allowed by states as far as birth parent expenses? And maybe explain what birth parent expenses are. Sure. Expectant parents' expenses are any expenses that go towards their care during their pregnancy, whether that be counseling, health care, utilities, phone bills, their living situation, things like that but it kind of covers the gamut of caring for them during their pregnancy. And like you said, it is state by state on what is allowed and how much is allowed. You have states like Florida that have no cap and it can go as high as 30,000 for expectant parent expenses Mm -hmm. or more. And then you have states like Georgia who only allow for counseling and medical. They don't allow for living expenses and things like that. So It just depends on the state and it depends on what mom's needs are and if they need to be judge approved and things like that. Yeah, it is so variable. That is something to think about, particularly if the adoption match fails. And we'll talk about that in just a bit. You might be out all of the money that you spent. It depends on who you are working with and how they handle that. Some agencies handle it such that all those costs come out of a pool so that each individual family is not out that money. Others, and perhaps even the majority, you lose everything if the matches absolutely do fail. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. All right. So how early in the pregnancy do adoption agencies and adoption attorneys match expectant moms with adoptive families? Erin, what are you seeing as far as how far along in her pregnancy is the expectant mom? Some agencies won't match until at least the last trimester. And I see others that match much earlier. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, we don't actually match. We're just the platform that families can have the profiles. And then we make sure that they're working with their adoption professionals who will walk them through the process. But we see on Pear Tree, we have we see expectant moms you know register very, very early, as early, you know, as they just found out they're pregnant. 
and we see expectant moms registering at 39 weeks pregnant. Mm -hmm. It's across the board in terms of when they do. I think when they're earlier on in the process, the advice that we to go give people is, especially if they're talking to adopting families early on in the process, like the chance of her going forward with this adoption period and staying with you is slimmer than if she's 39 weeks pregnant talking to you. Mm-hmm. And so we see expectant moms and we kind of put them into a couple categories in terms of early on, we'd say that they're just exploring their options versus if they're second trimester or third trimester. Yeah. Cause at that point they really are at that point should be exploring their options and not making firm decisions. Courtney, what do you see? We see the same to echo Aaron. We see some that are matching in the first trimester 13 to 15 weeks pregnant, and then all the way to 39 weeks pregnant, or baby is already born. Just kind of depends on the expectant mom situation. The agency, we have some agencies that won't work with them until they're fully through their second trimester. And then we have agencies that will work with them from the very beginning when they actually find out they're pregnant. So it just depends on the agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all over the board. And I've alluded to failed adoption matches. And that is something that I think catches people unaware. So I think it's important that we talk about it. There is no state that allows a mom to unequivocally sign away her parental rights while she is pregnant. It is entirely within the expectant moms, or at this point, the mom's right to change her mind after birth. And it does happen. And you have to be thinking in terms, financially and emotionally, how to be prepared for that. I don't think anybody knows the percentage of, of, and and so I won't even ask that, because honestly, it somewhat depends on how early in the pregnancy, as Aaron said, the likelihood of changing your mind. When you're 13 weeks pregnant, you've got a long time to be pregnant and make decisions. So there's so many factors that play in. So Carly... How does your agency handle failed matches? Ultimately, we we try to support families with all the emotions that come with that. I think we try to prepare families for that and remind them that we do decision-making counseling in the beginning when we first start working with a client to, you know, help make sure that they've explored all their options to and be honest with an adoptive family so that they know of just the circumstances, right? And I think reminding them that this expectant parent is in decision-making know, like throughout their whole pregnancy and even after baby comes, right? And so even though they've selected that family, they're, they feel confident right now that this is what they want to do, that decision-making they're in that phase until they sign those consents to the adoption and go through the court process. We try to prepare families for that, but nothing can fully prepare for that. And I think the financial aspect is just an additional sting to that really already emotional Mm -hmm. piece. So I would say we just we just try to prepare families for that as best as we can and and know that it's really difficult in the moment. I will link to an article that we did with a lot of surveys on adoptive parents uh, of the percentage of failed matches. I will link to that. It was interesting what we found out and how much money people ended up actually losing. Okay, now I want to talk about open adoptions. As both Carly and Courtney said at the beginning, one big difference now is that there is, in the vast majority of adoptions, some degree of openness. But openness is a... uh, looks very different. It is not a defined term that has specific meanings. So Courtney, what are some of the differences you see or how do you see openness play out in adoption now? 
Most moms are asking for visits now. I would say the majority of the moms that we see ask for visits, at least an annual visit each year, and expect that as a minimum. Whereas that didn't used to happen. They used to be closed or semi-open. Or yeah, semi. What it used to be open would include pictures once a year. That could be included. So you're right, right. I think for a long time we said they aren't closed, but what goes by open was not what we expect and not not what we're seeing Mm -hmm. now. Right. And I think there's a lot of an open line of communication now, whereas there didn't used to be that. There's texting and there's emailing and there's phone calls and there's FaceTimes. And I think that's a large part of the openness quality that a lot of moms are looking for. And when we get requests from moms looking for specific families, a lot of times those things are included in their requests. Only look families that will offer them those things. Mm-hmm. Right. It worries me a little, to be honest, because I think sometimes prospective adoptive parents say, yes, 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 because if I say no, mm-hmm. no, no, I won't be considered. But they don't think through, and I worry that their commitment to mm-hmm. open adoption is not as firm because... Adoption professionals tell them, look, if you're going to, if, if all you want to do is send pictures once a year, you're not going to be chosen. So, yeah, we've got to educate them as to what that means so that they are more likely to honor their commitment post adoption. Data lady, Erin, what are you saying as far (laughs) as woman after my own heart? (laughs) Yeah. So we asked this question. Sorry, more data. So we ask families when they're registering on Paratree, what are you open to? And and the three choices we give them are open, moderately open, or closed. And obviously that doesn't determine what the relationship is going to be, but we like to get some sense of what they're they're interested in so that we can serve up creating a family education to them. (laughs) And so 70% check the box that they are open to open adoption. I think the thing that we see is that just to, again, kind of mirror some of the things that have been said here. We see a lot of adopting families that are just starting the process that are very fearful mm-hmm. of open adoption because mm-hmm. they think someone's going to show up on their doorstep or mm-hmm. a lot of it is kind of like mainstream media in terms of what has been right. shown as you know, gone wrong in open adoptions. And what I always tell families based on my own experience as an adoptive mom is the minute a baby is placed in your arms or that you become a child, all you are going to want for that child is their health and happiness. And in order to give them health and happiness, you need to be able to answer their questions openly and honestly. And the only way to do that is with an open adoption. Mm-hmm. Well, not the only way, but one of the best ways to do that is with an mm-hmm. open adoption. And so we try to tell people that they'll go through a transition once they become a parent via adoption, where they will crave an open adoption. Mm-hmm. But again, it takes a lot of education to get them there. You are spot on. I couldn't agree with you more. I think we do have to educate I think that also it's easy to not recognize, and I think that professionals, we all have a way of wanting to have rose-colored glasses on and make it seem like open adoptions are going to be just as easy as, as you know, they will become like an aunt to the child or whatever. And yes, that can happen. But oftentimes you're coming from different socioeconomic, different cultural, and different values, and it gets complicated. And it gets sticky. And we want parents to be committed enough that they're willing to work through some of the stickiness because there is no relationship, no family relationship that is perfect. All family relationships 
well, maybe not all, but in my family, most of them can be challenging. Some, some are challenging, but all of them are a little like, oh, it's just, it's just Susie. That's how she acts, you know? So we just, we forgive them a bit because they're family and we're expecting, we go in expecting a certain amount of messiness and we're willing to move forward. I see with it sometimes with adoptive parents, once the adoption is final, a lack of willingness to work through some of the messiness. So, yeah, I definitely see that and and worry about that because the truth is after the adoption is final, even if you have an open adoption agreement, the adoptive parents are in the driver's seat. And that's why I worry that parents who say, oh, yes, yes, I'll do anything. Just let me get the baby. That's what worries me is that they're going to be the ones who say, I know I said I agreed to this, but honestly, you know, she annoys me or, you know, she does this or I don't really like the fact that she's got tattoos all over or whatever. I think it's a bad influence or whatever. We've heard it all. So, all right, Courtney, what type of special needs should prospective adoptive parents be considering that they may be faced with within a matches? What are the typical special needs that you're seeing now? Well, I don't know that I would refer to the special needs, but drug exposure is pretty great amongst expectant moms, expectant couples that we see. We see a lot of drug exposure. And so that can end in special needs. Doesn't mean it will. Just because they were exposed to drugs doesn't mean they'll have special needs, but it can have special needs. Mm -hmm. And then we have cases where we actually have a special needs consultant where we actually specialize in special needs specifically with looking for specific situations that have children with Down syndrome or with brittle bone disease or any type of special Mm -hmm. needs that a parent might be interested in parenting, adoptive parent might be interested in parenting. But I would say the biggest thing that we see right now is drug and alcohol exposure, Mm -hmm. which can render special needs. Okay. Carly, what about you guys? What are you seeing as far as special needs? Yeah, I agree with that. I think mental health is a big one that makes adoptive parents mm-hmm. nervous. I think you just don't know if and how if that'll get passed along to a child and what that could look like. I think some of those medical complexities too is just when you have a newborn, right? Like you don't know how those things are going to look in the future. And so mm-hmm. I think the fear of the unknown is a common thing that we see on top of the substance use and alcohol use. Some prescription medications, I would say too, that maybe are prescribed or maybe aren't being used appropriately mm-hmm. are the main things. Erin, what are the hardest special needs for adoptive, hardest situations for adoptive parents to decide about? Oh, I think hard is probably a relative term, depending on the families. But I think, again, kind of the role of education in this process is making sure that, you know, we tell families, like, it's okay to say no, that baby will be adopted. And so you have to know who you are and what you're willing to deal with. Just this last month, there was a child that was born and didn't have a pelvis, um, will never walk, deaf. And that required, that's going to require a lifelong support, that child. And so finding a family that was open to that, we had a few, but was wonderful. But finding a family that's open to that is different than a family where mom was doing recreational drug use in her first trimester. Mm-hmm. And again, like this is one of the things that I think an agency does a really good job of is working with families to make sure that they're prepared for that spectrum mm-hmm. and what that means. And also preparing them for, you know, there's guilt associated when you say no. Yep. So 
it's not easy on any level. I'm really glad you brought that up because you were absolutely right. Saying that I'm not the right one makes you feel like you're hardened or, yeah, and it should not. This is a lifetime commitment and it is fine to say no. In fact, please say no if you're not the right family. I know you guys have heard me say this before, but it's true. This show would not happen without the support of organizations and agencies that believe in our mission and believe in the show. For almost 40 years, Adoptions from the Heart has helped create over 7,350 families through domestic infant adoption. Adoptions from the Heart can also provide home study only services. They work with people all across the U.S. and are licensed in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Delaware, Virginia, and Connecticut. So Carly, what factors influence cost? We've talked about the cost, and it's a huge range. So what factors influence how much you're going to spend for an adoption? Yeah, so families can choose to stay in our profile service and utilize our services. And I think since we're limited to just Minnesota, they're probably going to wait longer. And so that's why we do encourage families to use outside sources and kind of broaden their outreach. But of course, there are additional costs with that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the biggest thing. If families have those resources and they're willing to put that into their process, they are more likely to get placement quicker. Not all families are able to do that, though. I think attorney involvement, again, that depends on some state requirements or different agencies require that. It's not always required, but maybe a situation requires it. So I would say that's the biggest thing. I also would say it depends how long you wait, right? Like, if you're doing a home city update every year for multiple years, that's going to pile up oh, on that cost. Yeah. And of course, if you're in a different state, those travel costs are really big. I know we talked about the uh, birth parent expenses too. Obviously, that can really add up those expenses quickly. And Erin, what factors influence how long do families wait for an adoption match? Yeah, what we tell families, two things that we tell families, we tell families, Spend as little as you can for as long as you can. <laughs> and again, like it's all relative. But I think when we see families at Pear Tree and they're like, we have X amount of dollars and we want to adopt as fast as we possibly can, that journey might look differently than somebody that says we have very limited dollars and we're that's it for us. And so like those two journeys look differently. And so like we'll recommend consultants like Faithful depending on how fast they want to go and how wide they want to go with their outreach. But we say like, when you're starting this process, spend as little as you can for as long as you can, because the longer you wait, the wider you're going to want to go and wider cost money. And so again, it's completely relative to each individual family. And Courtney, what factors do you see influence how long families wait for an adoption match? I think it varies widely. I think finances, obviously, like everybody has said, can be a big factor what they're able to pay for the adoption can prohibit them from being able to be considered for specific cases. And so that can make it take longer if their budget isn't very high. Mm-hmm. Even their profile, sometimes when families self-design, they don't hit the nail on the head very well. And they forget who their audience is sometimes. And they make a coffee table book rather than a book for an expectant family. And so I think that can prohibit a family from being matched quickly too when they're not remembering who their audience is. That makes excellent sense. Carly had said this earlier and Courtney just said it as well, but we tell families you need to be more afraid of being the same than you are of being different. 
Interesting. And so again, like most families are like, we want to, you know, cast the widest net possible. And in doing so, they become kind of generic. And so we say, like, let's think about what makes you you and let's amplify that versus, you know, you trying to be very few things to all people. You only need to be everything to one. And you're more likely to find that one by being yourself. Mm -hmm. That makes great sense. I do see how it is hard, though, because you want to be, as my father-in-law used to say, I like to be vanilla. Everybody likes vanilla. So need to be a little more chocolate with some strawberry sprinkles on top or something. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much, Carly Wagner, Aaron Quick, and Courtney Lott, for being on today to talk to us about domestic infant adoption, all things domestic infant. I truly appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you.